Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about home-wrecking horrors and oceanic anomalies. I'm your host, Steve Taylor. And tonight, I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Micah Edwards and Soren Narnia are voice talents Luis Bermudez and Drew Blood. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to... Turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Micah Edwards and is performed by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights 2019 Evil Idol voice acting champion Luis Bermudez. 
Tonight's tale is the first entry in Luis's new series, Bermudez Triangle, now available weekly on our YouTube channel. So, if you enjoy what you hear and would like to hear more brand new tales of the paranormal and mysterious, please check him out there. Again, that's Bermudez Triangle on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel. In our first round of fiction tonight, we'll meet a successful realtor whose day began much like any other. That is, until he showed the Huber family a home that truly was one of a kind. Without further ado, I present to you, Gray Michael. It started out like any other workday. I had houses to sell and people who wanted to buy them. Honestly, I've always found being a realtor embarrassingly easy. People seek you out and ask you to sell them incredibly high-ticket items. I've done other sales jobs, and you always have to talk the buyers into extras, into upgrades, all for a tiny commission. With houses, it's so much easier. Your customers walk in already prepared to sign their life away for the next 30 years, so it's easy to convince them to go for the nicer house, the better neighborhood, the higher price tag, the bigger commission, from my point of view. Obviously, it's not always completely smooth. I've had some real nightmare clients. Who hasn't? I've been yelled at, talked down to, insulted, even physically threatened on a couple of occasions, but 90% of my job was just about keeping a smile on my face and saying empty phrases like, okay, I hear you, or let's keep looking. Easy as pie. So I didn't expect this day to be anything out of the ordinary. Houses had been selling well lately and I'd just gotten several new ones added to my roster. If I kept my numbers up, I was on track to have the most sales of the quarter, so I was pretty motivated to get out there and get folks into a new house. I usually like to do a walkthrough beforehand to make sure that there aren't any surprises, but I hadn't had a chance to do that with my upcoming afternoon showing. If I had, maybe it would have turned out a lot better for the Hubers. Then again, maybe it would have turned out a lot worse for me, so I don't know. The house looked fine from the outside. It was a California split level, a little under 2,000 square feet, a classy mix of brick and wood siding. The house and land were well-maintained, and I could see that Mrs. Huber, Marilyn, was already charmed by it. It was within their price range and the school district they were looking for, and basically everything was just falling into place. I could smell an easy sale. I was going to be able to knock this one off on day one, and then it'd just be a matter of paperwork. I refrained from rubbing my hands together in glee as I walked the Hubers up to the front door, but only barely. That's how good I was feeling about this. Inside was great too, at least at first. Hardwood floors in the entry hall, big windows letting the whole place glow in the afternoon sun, nice neutral colors on the walls, and a pleasant smell in the air. It was picture-perfect staging, and the Hubers were eating it up. Irving was pointing out fancy features in the kitchen. Marilyn was talking about having people over for parties, and I just followed along pretending they needed me there. I didn't have to do a thing. The house was selling itself. Everything went perfectly right up until we were leaving. We'd finished touring the top floor, and they'd both gushed about how perfect the view from the master bedroom was. 
I was leading the way down the stairs, chatting over my shoulder with the Hubers and keeping one hand on the railing to guide myself along. I wasn't really paying much attention. How much attention does anyone ever pay to stairs? These were carpeted, they didn't squeak, and the wooden posts and railings were solid and attractive. They successfully connected the floors of the house. That's all you can really say about stairs. Suddenly, Marilyn broke into my patter. Sorry, this is a strange question, but how many floors does this house have? Uh, Three, including the finished basement, I told her, wondering why she was asking. We just finished walking through them all. Right, that's what I thought. Only, this is the second flight of stairs, and we're still heading to the front hallway. I honestly had no idea what she meant at first. Obviously, it wasn't the second flight of stairs, or we would be on our way to the basement. These weren't the basement stairs. Therefore, we hadn't gone down two flights. I tried to think of a way to say, you have not successfully counted to one. That didn't sound patronizing or rude. Finding nothing, instead, I said, well, we're here now, at least. We can... I stopped dead on a small landing where the stairs made a right turn. It should have been just a couple more stairs to the entryway. Instead, I was looking at the hallway leading to the bedrooms, the one on the top floor of the house. I looked behind me. At the top of the stairs, I could see the hallway we just left. My mind lurch, trying to find some sense to seize onto. It was a three-level house. I was at the base of some stairs, I could see other stairs ahead of me, leading down. Therefore, I must be on the middle level where the entryway was. It's just that I wasn't. I was on the top level, having taken stairs down to get there. Something's wrong, I said stupidly. Irving and Marilyn reached out and held each other's hands. They looked around nervously. I realized that they were waiting for me to do something. I was in charge here. After all, let's just, let's just take the stairs down, I suggested, suiting action to word. This time, I kept my eyes focused ahead, watching every step. I could hear the Hubers walking behind me, their paired treads only a stair away. Ordinarily, I would have been annoyed to have a client stepping on my heels like that, but right now, I didn't blame them at all. Eleven stairs down brought us to a right turn landing. With trepidation, I made the turn, hoping that somehow I'd just misunderstood something before, that I'd somehow failed to use stairs correctly. My hopes were dashed as I stepped out into the same carpeted hallway leading to the bedrooms. The ground floor was still somehow below us. The Hubers exchanged wide-eyed glances. I don't understand this said Marilyn. Well, look, said Irving, trying to be reasonable. If down doesn't work, maybe up will. He turned and began to walk back up the stairs. Struck by a sudden curiosity, I moved across the hall to look at the stairs leading down. Marilyn kept her position on the landing so she could see both of us. When the stairs came into view, I saw exactly what I'd feared. Although Irving had gone up the stairs behind me, I was now ahead of him on the floor he was climbing to. His face blanched when he saw me. This, this is impossible. 
He looked back at Marilyn below me. How is this happening? I can see you, Marilyn called weakly to me. From both directions, I can see you at the top of the stairs, she pointed, and at the bottom over here. She turned her head and gestured. Suddenly, feeling weak, I sat down against the wall, taking solace in its solidity. I closed my eyes and pressed my fingers to my temples, willing this all to be some sort of fever dream. Are you all right? Irving called. I heard his footsteps start toward me. He was only four or five steps from the top. Somehow, though, they kept going. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I opened my eyes. Irving was climbing the stairs, a look of terror on his face. He scrambled faster and faster, yet he never moved forward. Marilyn screamed. I leapt to my feet. Behind Irving, the staircase was lengthening, adding a stair beneath his feet for every step he took. I lunged forward, my hand extended for him to grab, but as I reached for him, a dozen new stairs appeared, dragging him away from me. Go back down, I shouted. Irving turned and tried to run, but it was too late. The stairs stretched away at a frightening rate, a corridor reaching out to infinity. Irving was reduced to a tiny speck somewhere in the middle, and although I could hear Marilyn screaming behind me... I could also hear a tiny version echoing faintly up the walls of what had been the staircase in front of me. Less than a second later, the staircase snapped back into place, the same eleven steps there should have always been. Irving was gone. Marilyn was shrieking. She had collapsed onto the landing and was clinging to the railing like it was a lifeline. She sobbed Irving's name over and over, but there was no response. Her total breakdown helped bring me back to myself. I took her by the arm and attempted to tug her to her feet. Mrs. Huber, Marilyn, come on, please. We have to get out of here. How? She wailed, a question for which I have no answer. I I don't know. One of the rooms, maybe? There must be. I opened the door to one of the bedrooms. Fear gripped my stomach. The door now led to another set of stairs, or more probably, the same ones. Irving! Irving! Come on, that isn't helping. Let's, I don't know, let's try going down the stairs with our eyes closed. Maybe it's an illusion. That didn't make any sense, but 
It was all I could come up with. It was good enough for Marilyn, at least. She closed her eyes and, still clinging to my hand, allowed me to lead her to the stairs. Okay, here's the rail. Put your hand on it. I'm not going to let go of you, I assured her. Just hold the rail for safety. I'm going to have my eyes closed too. Ready? Stay close. Here we go. My right hand on the railing, my left hand bent awkwardly behind me, I shuffled forward and felt my way onto the first step. I stepped down and felt Marilyn moved into the position beside me. Step. Step. Down the stairs, one shuffling movement at a time. I kept my eyes squeezed shut, letting my feet guide me. Slow though I went, after a few steps, Marilyn began to fall behind. Come on, you've got to keep up. I'm trying. You're going too fast. I'm barely moving, I thought, but did not say. I bit my tongue and took another step. From behind me, I heard Marilyn's muffled footsteps hitting the carpeted stairs. Once, twice, three times. My left hand, still gripped tightly in her fist, began to get pulled slowly backward. Marilyn? Slow down, she begged me. You're getting too far ahead. Stop moving. Fully stationary, I risked opening my eyes. I saw what I already knew had to be true. Just as it had with Irving, the staircase was beginning to lengthen. Marilyn, I said, my voice catching in my throat. Her eyes popped open, widening in fear as she realized what was happening. Help me! Her palm started to slide through my grasp, and I did the only thing I could do. I pulled as hard as I could, yanking her off of the stairs and sending her tumbling onto me. We fell down the last four stairs together, crashing into the wall of the landing hard enough to crack the plaster. I saw stars and tasted blood. Shaking my head, I struggled to a standing position and found that I was now looking at the entryway its gleaming wooden floors a shining beacon of hope. Marilyn was still sobbing on the ground, her arms wrapped around my leg. I'd like to believe that I wouldn't have bolted for the door and left her there in any case, but I certainly wasn't going to do it with the death grip she had on me. Marilyn, Marilyn, we made it. We're here. We can get out. She looked up, fearful and disbelieving. Come on. I coaxed, lifting her to her feet once more. Look, there's the door. We can go. But Irving! I know, I know. We'll come back for him. I lied. There was no chance I was ever setting foot in that house again. We can get help. We've just got to go. I half dragged her to the door. I was certain that it was going to be another trick, that the hallway would begin to stretch or the outside door would open to more stairs, but I had no idea what else to do. When I opened the front door and it actually led to the outside, I burst into tears. Eyes streaming, I raced down the brick steps. Marilyn kept pace with me, both of us running as fast as we could until we collapsed against our cars, chests heaving. Her hair was wild, her knees were skinned, her blouse was torn. I was certain I looked no better. I could feel a painful wetness on the back of my head where I'd banged into that wall, but my hair seemed to be keeping most of the blood in place, 
And if that was what it took to get out of that nightmare, I counted it a small price to pay. We stared at each other for several minutes. My heart rate gradually slowed. My mind attempted to tell me that I couldn't have seen what I thought I had. It was a bright, sunny, suburban day. Houses didn't unfold into impossible geometries, not in a nice neighborhood like this. If Irving had been there with us, I might have even convinced myself it was some sort of hallucination. But he wasn't. The house had him. We have to go back in, Marilyn said, but her voice lacked conviction. I shook my head, eliciting a stab of pain. No way. Sorry, no way. But Irving's in there. We'll get him. We'll get help. We can, I don't know, tie a rope to the outside or make a human chain or something. Something. But we can't go back in there like this. I can't just leave him. We'll come. My response was interrupted by a loud slam from the house. Our heads both jerked up to see the front door standing wide open. Irving stood in the door frame, gripping the edges like his life depended on it. He gave a cry that was half a yell of triumph and half a sob, and then he fell bonelessly down the brick steps to the pathway below. Marilyn and I raced over. Irving was in bad shape, and not just from the fall. His clothes were tattered and filthy. His hands were bloody and blistered. His hair was ragged. And although he had been clean-shaven when we stepped into the house, he had now what appeared to be several days' growth of beard. Irving! Irv! Irv! Marilyn cradled his head in her arms, but Irving did not move. I checked his pulse and was relieved to find it present. I let Marilyn attempt to wake him up for another minute, and then I took out my cell and called the 911. I lied to the dispatchers. I said he'd had some sort of an attack, that I thought maybe it was blood sugar related. I said his wife was here and would hopefully be calmed down enough when they arrived to give them better information. I gave them the address and told them we would meet them at the street. They said not to move him, and I told them that that was where he had collapsed. Then I hung up the phone so I could drag him to the curb. The open door of the house gaped mockingly behind me, challenging me to come back inside. It scared me to look into it, but it scared me more to have my back to it. So I simply got as far away as I could and waited for the EMTs. The ambulance took the Hubers away, leaving me alone. With no idea what else to do, I got into my car and drove back to the office. It wasn't even really a conscious decision. I was in shock and running on autopilot. I wandered into the office looking like I'd been mugged in the parking lot. I stumbled to my desk, ignoring my co-workers' questions and fell into my chair. I stared at my reflection in the blank monitor as their chatter passed over my head. After a few minutes, a hand fell onto my shoulder. I looked up to see my co-worker, Marianne. What happened? He just... I just... Him. There was an attack. He uh, had an attack, I mean... Keeping her voice low, her eyes darting around to see who was listening, she asked, Was it a house? What? A house? Did something go wrong in the house? 
I stared at her dumbly. She pressed on. Monsters, bent space, distortions of reality. I nodded. Okay, here. She passed me a business card, one from our agency. The name on it was Gray Michael. It wasn't anyone I knew. Gray, I started. Marianne frantically shushed me. Do not say his name until you're ready to talk to him. Go get cleaned up first. Take a moment. Don't stumble into this. Who is this? She glanced furtively around again. He's a co-worker. He specializes in difficult houses. He can help you here. I looked around the office. It wasn't that large of a space. Okay, but who is he? When you're ready, go out into the hallway. His office is right there. I've never seen it. You will once you say his name. Marianne moved off into the office, spreading a cover story about a client fainting and dragging me with him down some steps. I turned the card over in my hands a few times, then tucked it into my pocket and went to wash up. I wasn't wholly successful at getting all of the blood out of my hair, but by the time I was done, I looked fairly presentable and felt a whole lot more awake. My brain was working overtime, trying to convince me that I'd imagined the whole thing, that I'd fallen and hit my head and made the rest of it up. But there was still a 911 call in my recent calls log, and I knew that if I called the local hospitals, I'd be able to find out where the Hubers had been admitted pretty easily. I planted my hands on the bathroom counter and stared at myself in the mirror, trying to decide if I was looking into the eyes of a crazy person. In the end, I shrugged and turned away without an answer. All right, I said to myself. Let's go find Gray Michael. His office, as Marianne had said, was right there. The name was on a plaque on the door. It was impossible to miss, yet I'd somehow walk past it every day. I knocked lightly on the door. Come in, called a mild voice. I opened the door and met Gray Michael. He was normal, aggressively normal. If I told you to picture a generic white male, you'd be thinking of him. His smile was pleasant and professional, a perfect stock image look. He gestured to a chair in front of his desk. Come in, close the door, have a seat. So, you have a problem. I followed his instructions. How do you know I have a problem? You have my card, he said, as if that explained everything. Tell me what happened. I started to speak, but he quickly held up one thin finger. Not what you think happened, not what must have happened because what you remember can possibly be true. Tell me what happened, in order, without apology or prevarication. Something in his voice made his words less of an instruction and more of an unassailable command. I opened my mouth and let the words fall out. When I had finished, Gray Michael nodded his head. Simple enough. Simple? Yes, this is small, a fledgling. One trick, very little power. Shall we go? Go where? I was totally lost in this conversation. To the house. To remove it. I started to refuse, but Gray Michael stood up from his desk and brushed invisible dust from his suit. 
Drive. It will give you something to do. Without thinking, my keys were in my hand and I was heading for the door. We were out of the parking lot before I even realized he was riding in my passenger seat. I can't go back in there, I told him. You won't have to. Only one step, so that you can declare your request for assistance. What? You need to say the following phrase, as exactly as you can. I, as the duly appointed representative tasked with the preservation of this home and its contents, hereby invite Grey Michael inside. Only he didn't say Grey Michael. His lips said Grey Michael. The sound said Grey Michael. But what I felt was something dark and broken, words of tortured malice. We passed the rest of the drive in silence. Grey Michael seemed content to watch the scenery while I was simply trying to calm my panicked brain. When we pulled up outside, the front door was closed. I left that open, I told Grey Michael. It's not important, he said, getting out of the car. This will all be over soon. My courage failed me as I approached the front door. If it had still been open, I think I could have stepped inside. But to grasp the handle and open it myself was beyond me. I can't. I can't do this. Hmm, said Grey Michael. Are you saying that you've wasted my time? I took an immediate step backward from the look he gave me, banging my back against the house's front door. No, no! Then open the door and invite me inside. I opened it without hesitation. My fear of the house hadn't lessened, but I'd found something I feared more. I took a single step inside. That's far enough, said Grey Michael. Now, invite me. I cleared my throat. <clears throat> I, as the duly appointed representative, T tasked with the preservation of this home and its contents, hereby invite Grey Michael inside. His name twisted like burned rope in my throat. It felt like nails on bone, carving secret messages on my skeleton, words that would never leave me. Thank you, he said, stepping past me into the house. Now, please remain on the porch and Hold this door closed. Do not open it for anything. It could be very dangerous for you if you do. He closed the door in my face. I took hold of the handle and exerted a gentle pull. I wondered how long I was going to have to stand like this and what I would have to say to anyone who asked what I was doing. Those thoughts were driven from my mind when the screaming started. I jumped nearly losing my grip on the door handle, but fear of Grey Michael kept me in place. The screams seemed to come from the house itself, as if the bricks and boards were crying out. They ranged up and down in pitch, sounding sometimes human, but always terrifying. Then the scratching started, desperate clawing against the door. I felt tugging against the handle and I leaned my weight back, heedless of the steps behind me. Not for anything, Grey Michael had said, and I would not open it for anything.
My blood ran cold as voices began pleading with me. Children, old folks, family members, they begged and cried to get out. I stood fast. They slowly died away. Thank you, said Grey Michael from behind me. I spun around to find him standing at the bottom of the steps, not a hair out of place. You can release the door now. The house has been cleansed. What do we do now? By preference, you take me back to the office. You have a house to sell, after all, and I have other work to do. We were silent again on the drive back. At one point, he yawned. I glanced over and caught a glimpse into his mouth. It opened like a cave, distant lights glittering inside. He saw me watching and raised an eyebrow. I said nothing. We shook hands back at the office. I'll be seeing you around, Gray Michael said. I've been trying not to think too hard about what that might mean. In the meantime, anyone looking to buy a house, I can guarantee with absolute certainty that it is not haunted. Gray Michael made sure of that. I hope you enjoyed Gray Michael, as written by Micah Edwards and performed by Luis Bermudez. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Edwards. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash Edwards, spelled E-D-W-A-R-D-S. And you'll be redirected to the author's Amazon profile, where you can buy his books today, including his collection of the many tales he's written over the years, entitled Fright Bites, as well as the many anthologies he's been featured in over the years. And just so you're aware, as an Amazon associate, a portion of your purchase made via visiting that link comes back to us to help support this show, as well as the author. So don't delay. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Edwards and pick up any of the wonderful titles available on Micah's page today. You won't be sorry you did. And by all means, if you enjoy what you read, don't forget to leave him a five-star review and a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. And don't forget, you can hear more of Luis Bermudez via his new series, Bermudez Triangle, exclusively on our official YouTube channel, where you'll hear haunting new tales every month. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by our good friend Soren Narnia, creator of the Knife Point horror series and podcast, and performed by Drew Blood. In it, we'll be introduced to Russell Green, a man endeavoring to explore the depths of a sinkhole in the world's deepest freshwater lake. Unbeknownst to our curious protagonist, however, something dark and dreadful intends to do some exploring of its own. Now, without further ado, I present to you, Chasm. My name is Russell Green. At dawn on the morning of June 14th this year, 
I set off in a rented boat to a spot eleven miles north of Oimer, on Russia's Lake Bacall. My destination was informally called the Pit of Night. Three years ago, a giant sinkhole formed spontaneously at that spot, 3,500 feet below the lake's surface, making the lake even deeper in that area. The Pit of Night, less than a half mile across, could only be detected remotely as it formed. Seen on computers as a nebulous disturbance, it took experts months to define. Geologists believe the sinkhole may have been set off by deep drilling on the shore near Popova during construction of a plant that would make cardboard, but they couldn't be certain. Also unknown was the exact depth of the pit of night, because divers, of course, weren't able to plummet to any extent. The water pressure became unendurable at only a thousand feet. Echo sounders, combined with cold water temperature in that area, pointed to the possibility that the sinkhole was of a depth that may have made the spot match the deepest point of the deepest lake in the world, which is Lake Baikal itself. That would mean the bottom point was more than 5,000 feet below the surface. I had the idea to boat out to the pit at night as a way to unofficially end a three-week solo trip through Mongolia that I had taken on assignment from the Tandem Regional Times, based in Ontario. The idea was to drive in from my hotel in Irkutsk and go out to the spot and have a swim just to say I did it, mark it on some interior bulletin board of minor outdoorsy accomplishments. I didn't think there would be anything out there of interest to readers, really. The rental service must have become overly impressed with my ties to the press because they were willing to give me way more boat than I needed for no extra money. A 70-foot former shrimper that had been converted into a research vessel and hadn't seen any action for a while. It was pretty decrepit at least, which was what I was used to. The pit of night was a couple of miles beyond the furthest point of tourist travel on that part of the lake, so I expected to be all alone at that hour of the morning. It wasn't quite light when I set out. By the time I had to start thinking about seriously plotting my position, it was full dawn, but totally sunless and foggy. The horizon and the sky merged in a gray, ghostly haze and it was impossible to tell where one began and the other ended. The lake was calm, just barely warm enough to have a brief swim in my thermally insulated wetsuit when I got to the right spot. I saw exactly one other boat as I went, a Viking five-star owned by someone rich or one of the charter companies. It had been more than a year since the incident that had cemented the sinkhole's nickname. I'm talking, of course, about the disappearance of the Beer Bachelor sisters, the German outdoor adventurers in their twenties who were as famous for their fashion model looks as their mountain climbing and deep sea diving exploits, and who didn't mind trading off those looks to secure further funding for their travels. But above all, they were experienced, intelligent explorers. They blogged about crossing the pit of night on their way northeast in late June last year during a photography trip, and 16 hours after they embarked from Oimer, the search for their vessel began. Yet nothing was ever found. Not bodies, not the boat, 
not the slightest sliver of wreckage. The Beer Bachelor sisters had simply disappeared. That was all it took to create the beginnings of a legend about the sinkhole and what it might be hiding. It was tough to forget the last picture they took together as they climbed aboard their boat and headed off, smiling at the camera. The likeliest scenario was that they had gotten caught in a squall and the boat sank. Lake Baikal's sheer size made it incredibly difficult to pinpoint their route and dive for wreckage with any real precision. There were whispers that an abduction was possible, a kidnapping, piracy, but no evidence had been found of this. It remained a mystery. Consulting my GPS, I closed in on the sinkhole right on my informal schedule, putting along quietly at 12 knots, feeling more and more alone, though God knows that was a feeling I was completely used to doing what I did for a living. Even I, though, had my own interior tears of solitude, and that murky, oppressive sky and the barren emptiness of late by call all around me depressed my mood. I found myself looking forward to the plane ride home. I'm not sure exactly when I killed the boat's engine because I was more or less on the pit's center point. Visually, of course, I saw nothing different. From my vantage point, the lake looked just the same. I sat and put on my wetsuit and snapped a couple of pictures of myself smiling, and then I dove over the side of the boat into the cold water. It was so cold, I let out a little yelp going in, but I had experienced worse. I took a couple of leisurely laps around the boat, then treaded water for a time. Then, for posterity, I closed my eyes and let myself simply sink. my arms over my head, descending into the deep naturally, allowing myself the fantasy that I was actually lowering myself into the pit of night itself. The pit's gaping mouth was 3,500 feet below me unseen, but at least I could say I gave it a chance to suck me in forever, to claim me, but it never did. Just a few seconds into my descent, I reached a state of zen-like calm and was able to feel an appreciation on an elemental level for where I was, the awesome natural scope of it. I opened my eyes and saw only darkness. I had just about reached my dive limit and was ready to stop myself and swim back up to the surface for a breath when my legs began to be lifted gently by a push of water from beneath me, as if a current were coming from below. The water felt no warmer or colder. My legs went up, up until I was horizontal in the dark, and I could hear the low moan of a large body of water shifting, reorganizing, and I freaked out a little, frightened of what might happen to me depending on the size of that current. I began to swim upwards quickly, but the current became quickly stronger than I, and it turned me completely over. I popped up above the surface in a bit of a panic, but I regained control again quickly. The surface of the lake was still calm. Only when I was comfortably treading water again did it become just a little choppier where I was. I was maybe 27 feet from the boat, and I swam toward it with some haste. There was no telling where that rush of water had gone to, 
or how big it had been. The only other time in my life I'd felt something like that had been when I was swimming in the Sea of Cortez and the blue well had passed me from below. The well wasn't more than ten feet from me, but there was nothing that size in Lake Baikal, which was strictly a freshwater lake despite its 12,000 square mile size. I'd read that the creation of the Cinco may have created powerful vents, but I'd never read any accounts of them. The old fishing boat rocked very gently as I grasped the ladder and slung over its port side and climbed back up. I turned and looked at the spot I swam from. There was nothing there of any note. I had my adventure, and after I changed out of my wetsuit, I'd head back to the shore. I wondered if the Beer Bachelor sisters had maybe encountered the results of a vent, as some believed, and how strong it might have been. But even if they had, that might have merely wrecked their boat, but it wouldn't have swallowed it, unless whirlpools could be created over the pit of night. I had heard of phenomena like that. I entered the open cabin, changed out of my wetsuit and into a sweatshirt and jeans after toweling off. I remained in my bare feet. I took two more pictures, both of the dreary gray horizon. Visibility remained very poor. It was a little unsettling not to be able to pinpoint where the horizon truly began because of the blurred focus effect the humidity was causing out there. At the point where the surface of the lake disappeared into nothingness so far out, I could see a slight disturbance. Very small waves were forming now, rolling in toward me. The kind of waves generated by a large craft but I saw and heard nothing out there. It was more likely that the weather was not quite what I thought it would be. I had absolutely no indication that there would be the slightest meteorological disturbance in the area of the pit. The forecast had been for no sun, but certainly nothing above a two on the Beaufort wind scale. But the climate could be strange, and it was best I was leaving now. The boat began to rock gently. The waves seemed to double in size very quickly, but still no hint of wind. I thought something beyond the horizon was creating those waves. I was momentarily unbalanced as the lake's icy water slapped against the boat. Looking east and west, I saw that this was a very localized disturbance, as the surface was strangely calm, only 100 yards away. I moved into the cabin to be more secure. I would start the engine as soon as the boat was stable. I peered through the port side window, stabilizing myself against the ledge in front of me. The waves were getting smaller already, and the surface of the water was settling. I emerged from the cabin, closed my eyes, and listened. No engines, no horns, just the low hush of the black water. Then came a sound I've tried to describe many times and always felt I failed to. I've heard many sounds of whales as recorded deep under the surface of the ocean, and this was like someone had slowed the recording like that, deepened its pitch. It rose from nothing, just barely audible, and demanded that I remain perfectly still and focused to hear it throughout its duration. 
It reached a sustained moan and seemed to come from behind dozens of unseen stone doors separated by miles of lightless watery deep. Fifteen, twenty seconds, then gone, dissipating like mist in every direction and no direction. Though I felt the source was far beneath me, not out there somewhere on the lake. No creature in these waters could have ever made a sound that full, that echoing. And I had the terrifying thought that maybe that was what the sinkhole's creation had sounded like thousands of feet beneath the waves. And there had now been another destabilization which was opening it even further, creating a suction which would take me down forever. By now the boat had drifted to a point I guessed was on the southern edge of the pit of night. I started the engine. It kicked grudgingly into life. I had the presence of mind to cue up my smartphone's voice recorder just in case that sound came again, though I might not even hear it over the sound of the engine. I turned the boat back toward the south, swinging around in an arc wider than I needed so I could get a better look at my surroundings. Every direction looked the same. I had to rely on the GPS to point myself in the right one. So paranoid had I become that I cross-checked its hint with the compass on my keyring. I headed back slowly because I didn't want the sound of the engine to blot out everything else. I was content to put along that way for a while, replaying that sound I had heard in my mind again and again. It was truly not different enough from things I had heard in nature in my years of traveling to be something to be feared, but I feared it all the same. I turned and looked behind the boat and I imagined a brief glimpse of the beer bachelor sisters standing near the stern. The color leached from their flesh by days and days beneath the lake, their location missed again and again by hopeless rescue vessels. I snapped myself out of that quickly. I focused on the tiny GPS display so I wouldn't have to think so much, and when I was about a mile past the pit of night, I opened up the engine more to get up to a speed I felt better about. For about five minutes I plowed forward, hearing nothing over the engine, feeling a humid breeze created entirely by my motion. Occasional raindrops struck the window in front of me, nothing to worry about. The way ahead was foggy, unclear, but that didn't really matter now. My only concern a few minutes from now would be a boat emerging too quickly up ahead. I'd estimate that I had my attention fixed totally forward for a total of eight minutes before I turned around that second time to look back. Maybe I sensed something, but I certainly hadn't heard it. About 150 yards behind me, just at the point where visibility became washed out, some enormous thing was disappearing beneath the waves. When I had turned, it had been in the act of descending, so that I only saw the end of its rapid motion and wasn't able to accurately judge the size of what I'd seen. I could only see that it had been a dark gray mass, jagged 
and contoured as if a gigantic rocket poked up from below and then swiftly vanished again in reaction to outside forces. Maybe fifteen feet of it had protruded and for no more than a couple of seconds. From that point where it sank under the waves, white caps rolled outwards, fairly big ones. Whatever had gone below had gone below hard, and it was big enough to create a tidal shockwave a little bigger than the one I'd experienced before. I killed the motor at once without thinking, compelled to move toward the stern to get even a few feet closer to the site. As the boat drifted, the disturbance created by the thing 150 yards away settled fast, leaving just emptiness. That could only have been a whale, I thought to myself, which was impossible. They couldn't have come from a saltwater source to lake by call. And it just seemed like it had been too big, the white caps it made too prominent. I took my camera out and pointed it at the bleak horizon and waited. I was scared then. My hands were shaken. I remember it clearly. If nothing happened in thirty seconds, I would retreat and get the boat moving forward again, slowly maybe, on the off chance that I could snap a photograph of some amazing phenomenon. The seconds ticked away. The water stayed undisturbed, the last of the real waves passing the boat. My eyes darted from spot to spot, searching for any irregularity on the surface of the lake. Come on, I thought. Come on, come on, what were you? The boat was rocking just a little more than normal. The water around it on all sides choppier than it had been. Then there was a terrific jolt that threw me off balance, almost as if I had struck a sandbar, and the boat's very gentle forward motion simply stopped. It wasn't moving at all suddenly. Out here, miles from the nearest landmass, I was freakishly anchored, held by something that wasn't letting me go forward, back, or sideways. My heart was hammering. The thought of sending the distress signal rose immediately in my mind as I tried to imagine what had gripped the boat. I edged closer to the starboard side, keeping my center of gravity very low in case another jolt, and looked over. The lake was infuriatingly black and secretive. As if to mock me, a single gull appeared from the east and settled on the dirty stern of the boat. Its tiny eyes seemed to fix right on me. Water suddenly flew up, and from just beyond the stern in an erupting spray, a giant, pale, hook-like object the size of a man whipped from beneath the surface of the water and curled over the edge of the boat. The gull disappeared under its bulk. The hook thing smashed into the planks and drove deep into them, snapping them clean. As it withdrew, it ripped the boards with it and crashed through wood, fiberglass, and steel, smashing a gap there, pieces of the boat splintering and flying into the lake. The entire boat tilted upwards, and I grabbed the railing beside me to hold on. 
The visibly organic thing went below again after scraping a massive section of the stern away in a second and a half, and the boat settled uneasily, rocking left and right. I remember just standing there for a moment when my balance was secure and inert, numb with the kind of shock people must feel after seeing a car accident or being told their wife had suddenly died somewhere far away. Then my reflexes sent me back into the cabin to gun the engine even before I could survey just how bad the damage was. My only thought was to get away as fast as I could. As soon as the motor was going and the boat was moving forward, I stepped away from the wheel and saw that I was not going to make it back to shore. The bow of the boat was angled dangerously high and it was cantering to the left because of the imbalance created by the damage. Water was freely lapping over the stern and sloshing into the hole left by the hook thing. More and more every second. The water was weighing the back down, making it too heavy. I would eventually turn over, I thought. It was only a matter of time, so I pushed the engine hard. Unable to keep the boat on a straight line, having to turn it against the momentum that imbalance was generating, the engine would blow out first, probably, destroyed by the lake water. The radio was in perfect working order. With the touch of one button, I sent my GPS coordinates to the Russian border guard, but locating an open channel through a gauntlet of static was the problem. There was a life jacket beside my head, and I tore it free from its hook and got it on as I frantically tried to stabilize both the boat and myself. I was never able to connect to a live person in the border guard before I had to abandon the radio. My coordinates and cry of mayday would have to do. My attention was divided evenly between the way ahead and the way behind. Nothing was chasing me except time. It became difficult to even stand because the bow was cantering upward more and more. This is it, I thought. I'm going down into the lake. There was a horrible industrial choking sound as the engine gave that ended in a terrifying silence. The boat carried forward with whatever momentum it had left, veering off to the east, getting me not much further toward the invisible shore. There was no point in waiting for it to go down. The incline would soon be too great for me to stay upright at all. I made my way out of the cabin in quick small maneuvers hanging on to whatever I could. There was no time to get my wetsuit on. Fearing I was going to my death, I leapt over the side of the boat into the frigid water and watched the boat drift pathetically on, leaving splinters and shards and debris behind it. As I tread water, it got closer and closer to the disappearing point in the gray shroud all around me and then moved into it just as it began to turn over onto its port side. And so I never saw it go fully down. It became a ghost. I tried to get my breathing under control so as not to go into total shock. I tilted my head to the sky because the blankness up there allowed me to focus on staying calm. My only hope would be to stay sane and swim but it would take me another two full minutes for my brain to send me the proper signal to really move. Panic had me completely. 
And now, to my utter horror, my sense of direction had been destroyed. All directions still looked the same under that sky. I tried to visualize the path of the boat before and after it had been struck, but was unable to calculate anything clearly. My course, useless as it would be, would be a guess, probably not even improving my chances of discovery by another boat or a rescue vessel by one percent. And so, I chose to just swim away from where I believed that weirdly organic semen hook had emerged from the waves. I wasn't more than 30 yards on my hopeless journey when I heard the boat being struck far beyond the fog. Struck just once, hard, a low crack as if it were being split in two, an echo trailed it. After that first brutal contact, whatever had smashed into it did not initiate contact with it again. When I heard that, I let myself drift. I am ashamed at how that broke my spirit, ashamed my survival mechanism withered so fast. The part of my brain that should have been telling me to think rationally instead told me there was something in the lake that would find me soon enough, or hypothermia would claim me in another few hours. There was no cause to struggle. My chances were as good as letting myself go limp as they were fighting to cover meaningless yards. Years ago, I was taught a trick by a man who had almost died in a snowstorm on K2. A trick to remain on an even mental plane in the face of hopelessness. When there's nothing you can do but wait for help, he told me. Blot out the visual. Close your eyes and keep them closed. Simplify. Become inert and sightless. And now I could feel that helping me. It was true. Processing the visual all around me, which promised only a terrible end, had to be stopped. I became brutally pragmatic. Sight would not help me in this moment. It would only cause me to overreact, to panic. If I could have kept all sound out, I would have. I heard water moving in a new way somewhere in front of me, very close. It was being displaced by something tremendous, and I was pushed slowly backwards by a sudden current, still limp. It sounded like a waterfall was being born from nothing, and I began to feel spatters of water strike my face from above. My eyes were locked shut, but I sensed the daylight on my face being eclipsed and the color inside my eyes went from a swamp-like gray to absolute black. As the sound of something mute rising from the lake continued, the spatters became a torrent. Water was descending off this gigantic thing high above me, cascading off it, and I was struck so hard by its force and volume that I went momentarily under then bobbed back up again as the shower tapered off. I drifted further away from the center point of the great disturbance, sent away by the current. My face to the sky, I clapped my hands over my eyes, relying on my life jacket to just barely keep me afloat. I absolutely would not look. A crack
crackling sound came from above, maybe as far as a hundred feet above, something splintering. There was a splash off to my left, then one well behind me, and upon the third one I felt an object strike my right foot, and there was a brief flash of pain. I had so profoundly taken leave of my senses that I didn't realize then that what I was feeling was debris from the boat crashing into the lake. Whatever it was that towered above me became motionless. If it moved toward me, I would die perhaps, but I would not face my killer. Yet there was no motion, as if the thing were waiting for something, or maybe observing me, studying me. I took my hands away from my eyes, and that intense interior darkness beneath the lids remained. It was still there somewhere, blotting out the ghastly sky. It returned to the depths all at once. There was a baritone whooshing sound and then an immense slap against the surface. Water sprayed across me and then the waves engulfed me and sent me turning over and over. My arms flailed and I tried to stay up but I became helpless, lost in the rush of tide the things the scent created. I felt myself drowning, spinning in the darkness, frozen, engulfed by my tomb, frigid and different Lake Baikal, the deepest lake in the world. I did not wish to return to the surface again. Here, down below where everything was and would be mercifully black forever, I opened my eyes as my body rotated gently, having no idea whether I was upside down or sideways or even still in one piece. A face emerged ten yards in front of me. floating forward just a few inches from a point of nothingness. A face unnaturally, impossibly vivid under the water. And then the rest of a body, also white in perfect contrast to the darkness. The figure of a woman, but this was no corpse. Like a sculpture made of white soap, the woman, once visible, remained perfectly still. Like she was standing on an invisible pane of glass, not floating, just standing there. Her hair stayed limp on her shoulders, and where her eyes had been, where her mouth had been, there was just white smoothness. She was holding something in her pale, bony right hand. It was a camera. Then she retreated into the dark without her limbs moving an inch as if some unseen rope around her waist were retracting, retracting, gone back to heaven or hell or the corridors of my subconscious mind. Why not both of the sisters? Why just one of them? Why had it been Gerda, who they called the shy one, the one long tormented by dreams of dying in a plane crash, I next remember gasping uncontrollably. I had popped up onto the surface and was coughing up blood and water, my lungs spasming painfully. 
The shock of my body's last desperate attempt to hold on to life forced my eyes open. I was looking directly up at the growing dot of a helicopter coming from the south. My mind and body too wrecked to think to scream or raise my arm in a signal. I just watched it. At first, I was convinced that tiny engine sound so far in the distance was moving away from me. But I was wrong. I was back in the exact same helicopter that rescued me 11 hours later as it flew low and fast over the waves of Lake Bacal, now layered in the shadows of night. The searchlight, when they turned it on two miles shy of the pit of night, gave me discolored glimpses of the choppy, secretive surface. No one was talking as we went into a wide, low arc around the search site, the dangerous cold wind making it hard for the pilot to keep us completely steady. Everyone's focus had become quite intense. It was only just and fitting that I would be the one to first lean forward hard against the straps that secured me in point and tell them, There, there, I see it. There it is. I hope you enjoyed Chasm, as written by Soren Nonia and voiced by Drew Blood. As a reminder, you can hear more of Drew Blood via his series of the same name, exclusively on our official YouTube channel, where you'll hear haunting new tales every month. If you check him out, be sure to give him a thumbs up and leave a kind word and tell him you heard him here on this program and that Steve sent you. It would mean a lot to me. And if you dig Sora Narnia's work, search for Knife Point Horror on Amazon where you'll find his books for print, or check out his podcast of the same name. You won't be sorry you did. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode, and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. 
Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.